Hello, and welcome to the Prison During the Pandemic Oral History Series. This is Cecilia Klein, and I am here with my partner, Helen LaPointe. Today, we are going to be talking with Ms. Erin McGann about her experience working with criminal justice in 2020. So first, I just wanted to get to know you a little bit. So where were you born or where are you from? Sure. So so I'll start with my name. My name is Erin McGann. Um, I was born in Connecticut. Um, but I grew up all over the country. We just moved a lot when I was a kid. Um, I went to high, I went, we zoomed around the country. I went back um, to high school in Connecticut. I went to college in North Carolina. Um, I've also lived in um, DC, Denver and Taos, New Mexico and Austin, Texas. And now I'm in Maine. Wow. My, my less, my, my, advice to everyone is don't feel like you have to stay where you were born or or anywhere I mean you can always move <laughs> the caveat to that is you are always still there so <laughs> but yeah I moved a lot um, I like moving um, and I like learning new things so I didn't just directly jump into working in criminal justice although my degree in college um, is justice and policy studies um, and then when I was in my uh, I think my, it was either my late forties or early fifties. I went and got my master's degree in criminal justice. I'm 56, just so you have a baseline on one, like how long ago we're talking about. Um, and I've worked for the last 15 years in criminal justice in one way or the other. So before that I worked in finance. So, you know, I've had a little bit of divergent um, careers. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, could you maybe just explain a little bit about what it is your, you do with your occupation right now? So right now is a little bit different than what I have been doing working with incarceration. So right now I work um, with an organization that does training on internet crimes against children. So we do a lot of work with police officers and DAs. Um, on catching predators um, who are using the internet. And we, we look, you know, look at things like VPNs and, um, you know, iPhones and all of those other things, you know, that where the predators hang out, which is online these days, not on the corner. Um, and so that's what I'm doing now. now. I just started that job though, because I moved to Maine just in February. Um, so before that, I worked for five years at the Texas Veterans Commission as the Justice Involved Veterans Coordinator. And I worked in every aspect of the criminal justice system. So um, police, courts, jails, parole and probation and prisons. So I kind of had my fingers in all the pies. And before that, I worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which does parole, pro parole and prisons. So I worked with the parole and prisons. So I did that for 10 years. Wow. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit, bit about how um, much kind of like your job changed with like shutdown and like COVID and kind of the last year and a half? Yeah, so we, um, uh, March 19th of last year, we were sent home. Um, and we got a directive from our executive director that said, you know, we'll be gone for two weeks, you know, it'll be fine. Um, go home, just don't come back on Monday because March 19th is like a Friday. And I was like, why are we waiting till Monday? Why can't we just go home now? And my boss was like, good idea. So we all went home that day <laughs> and um, never went back. I mean, you know, uh, somebody finally went up four or five months later and cleaned out the refrigerator in our office, which they had a hazmat suit for. 
And what changed drastically for me was prior to COVID, I traveled three to five days a week. Um, you know, Texas is a really big state and there's a lot of courts and prisons and, you know, people that need training and stuff. And so I would usually get up like Monday morning um, and go somewhere, somewhere else besides Austin, which was where I lived. Um, and I'd be gone. I tried to get back. Can you hang on one second? Sorry. Oh, no worries. <laughs> what have you done? There you go. I'm sorry, one of my dogs pushed his treat underneath the door and he was gonna try to dig the door down. So sorry about that. <laughs> no um, anyhow, so I would go, I would be off. So I would be um, you know, visiting a court or a prison or a jail, um, visiting with people who were inside or people who are about to go inside or with police officers, I'd be doing trainings. Um, so clearly that drastically changed. I mean, are the prison system shut to anybody from outside the system? If you weren't employed there, you did not, um, you did not get to um, go in, period. Like that was it. Um, and even many, many people who were employed there did not, um, they were sent home to work from home. And things like parole changed and probation changed drastically. So parole and probation are sort of the end of the, the system. You know, it's, you've gone through, I don't know how much you guys know about this. So just tell me if you know it all and, and, and I don't need to tell you, but, um, I mean, not like, not like, you know, it all, but like, if you know what I'm talking about, you can just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I got it. <laughs> so parole is, is like the end of your sentence. So you're sentenced to 10 years in prison. You serve seven, you still owe the state three. So that's, you'd be on parole for three years. Probation is an actual sentence. So you get a DWI and they're like, you're on probation for 10 years. And so you have to check in with somebody for that amount of time. Um, and you've got some rules that you have to follow. So generally um, there's home visits and there's office visits. And, and for some people there's um, work visits and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of like face-to-face, -face, you know, actual, not necessarily touching, but you know, real face-to-face -face stuff. And all that had to change. Um, so there was most, if not all, I never, I hate to say all because you know things are different all the time, but um, most parole and probation office, uh, office visits took place out in the community. Nobody came into the office unless there was a big problem, um, which, which caused a lot of like, it was made it very interesting because, you know, some of the things that have to be done are like your analysis, like almost everybody has to do a UA once a month. So all of a sudden they're having to do them out in the community or not do them at all. And how do you make that decision? You know, or they're doing um, drive-bys on people's living situations, um, you know, just like, hey, waving from the car, you know? And, um, and again, that, that's a complicated thing because if you can't identify that somebody's actually living there, not just standing on the front steps and waving, you know, that person's at risk. And then we saw a lot of, of course, jobs, the jobs changed, you know, that, that um, people with felonies could get. And so that became very complicated um, with people not being able to get jobs because everything was closed. Because usually people with backgrounds, you know, do restaurant work, construction work, you know, those kind of sort of, um, more menial jobs that have a lot of turnover and people don't really care, you know, like what your background is because you're probably not going to stay there that long. And so we saw, you know, a lot of those jobs went away. And so people had a very hard time when they were getting out of prison. So we saw, but what we didn't see was a lot of people turning back into prison. And that was because nobody, nobody wanted them back. That sounds really funny, but um, basically there's, so for 
parole and for probation, but I'm going to talk about parole for a second first. There's a hierarchy of um, of um, um, what's the word they use? Sanctions. Um, so if you if you get caught one time using drugs, you know you have to go to a class. If you got two times using drugs, you might have to go to a class and have more um, drug tests. If you get caught three times, then they might you know put you on an electronic monitor. If you get caught four times, they might send you back to prison. Okay. So those that's kind of the hierarchy, and um, and they always try to you know hit at the lowest level on the hierarchy of of um, of sanctions because that's what works best. So, but they didn't want to send anybody back to prison. So people were just like, not going back to prison. Not, so we saw like really interestingly, like a substantial reduction in the prison population. And we saw federal prisons releasing people who had um, lower level crimes or who had served extensive sentences. And then of course, in this past year, um, we've seen the um, marijuana laws change for the federal. So there, there's, um, they were letting a lot of people out of prison because they had they would fall under this new law and so they're like let them out let them out because and it's not because they're like oh we don't want them to get covid they don't want to treat people in prison medical costs are insane so if we can get them out the door they don't have to pay for the covid treatment and and that is just it all comes down to cost when we're talking about the criminal justice system and you'll see like when you look at a budget, for example, for Connecticut look at their prison cost it's really high. But most of that cost comes from providing medical care to elderly people, because we've got an extremely aging elderly population in prisons right now, people, you know, people who have done very, very bad things, you know, and it's, um, I'm not advocating for anybody to get out, you know, just because they've been in for a long time, but we've got some severely um, sick people who are in prison who aren't getting, uh, you know, who get, I mean, they definitely get substandard care, but it still costs something, you know, to, to house these people. Now, when I was a parole officer, I had a, I had a number of people on my caseload who, who, um, may have gotten released because they were so sick you know like you know, they were either physically ill or or had severe mental illness and um and so those people still have to be seen while they're on supervision you know you still i so i went to i had four nursing homes that i went to um and i was the only person who these folks would ever see you know they didn't really have family or anything and so i'd go to the nursing home and some of them knew who i was some of them were every time it was a new person <laughs> so um so that was interesting but for the the COVID specifically once so all um all experts recommend that uh, that in the COVID situation and any type of situation like COVID, right? So the flu, SARS, you know, whatever, a number of years ago, that anybody who's living in a barracks type situation, so that covers nursing homes, that covers prisons, that covers um, military, they should all be vaccinated first. Because when disease hits in those places, like communicable diseases, it just runs through the population super fast. Um, prisons often are shut to visitors you know for a month in in flu season because everybody on the whole unit has the flu and that way they don't you know they don't bring it out but they don't want to bring it in either you know so um there's one state that followed those guidelines of um of vaccinating prisoners first and that was massachusetts they vaccinated they got all their jail and prison population vaccinated right away along with their nursing home population all other states um didn't because of the pol the politics surrounding it the way it looks 
right? Mm -hmm. So it's a it's um it's a it's a bad decision if you ask me. I mean that's my opinion, and that fifty cents won't even buy you a cup of coffee. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but so with COVID, we my work changed drastically. So I had I was doing this all day long, right? Well, you there are no video conference calls in prison. Um, in Texas, there's some in some of the federal facilities, but they're not set up for um, for for vendors. Like I'd be considered a vendor, you know, to come in and talk to people. Um, the courts all went Zoom, and so there wasn't an opportunity for me to go to the courts and do training. The particular trainings that I do with police officers were legislatively mandated that they had to be done in person. I could not do them over Zoom. So, like, all of a sudden, all, you know, I had this much work, all of a sudden I had this much work. So I actually spent most of um, my time during COVID teaching suicide prevention classes. Wow. And so, and I could teach this to everybody in the criminal justice system. So it worked out very well. I just couldn't um, touch my, my people. And I did a lot of letter writing, um, which I always do a lot of letter writing um, for inmates, just because that's the only way they have to communicate with me. They can't call me. They can't, you know, there's no other way. So they can't email me. So they would write me letters with their problems. And so I, I spent a lot, I was much more up to date on my letters. I was usually two months behind. And so I was able to be up more, up, much more up to date. Um, did you, you probably have more questions. Um, I was just curious. So you're saying they couldn't like send you emails or anything. So does that mean where did they have access to like the media or like ways to know what was going on with like the Black Lives Matter movement or things like that going on? Huh? So they have access to TVs and um, depending on what unit they're on um, and depending on sort of who runs that kind of stuff, they might be watching Fox News or they might be watching CNN. So, you know, they get different information um, uh, depending, you know, where they are. They are equally as well or poorly informed as civilians. So there are people inside who think that, you know, Black Lives Matter is stupid. They think that the police are just fine, you know, except, of course, the, in their specific case. Um, they think that COVID is a hoax um, or, you know, that they're getting a microchip put in. So all of those um, fake things that we hear about that we can then go um you know research and see like really is somebody implanting a chip in me when i get my shot um which they're not <laughs> just to be clear um, they don't have the opportunity to do that research so they you know they get what they get and they like it or not so a lot of them get you know and, and not um you know, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but a lot of people go into prison with pretty low educational levels, um, if any at all. You know, there's a lot of people who have dropped out um, of, of high school um, or even elementary school. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that I talk to who are like, yeah, I stopped going to school in fourth grade. And I'm like, how does that even happen? You know, like, I don't understand. There's, you know, there's, there's police and stuff that come looking for you and they just, if, if education, I mean, education is important in your family. That's why you go to school where you are. Um, if education is not important, then they're not going to, family's not going to make the effort to make sure you go to school. And that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who are in prison, not all, but a lot of people who are in prison come from family trauma um, and have a lot of other things going on aside from the fact that they committed a crime. Like that's just the point that we got to know them. Um, but, uh, outside of that, there's a lot of trauma, um, whether it be familial trauma or 
um, cultural trauma, like if you're black or Hispanic, you know, there's a lot of trauma surrounding that for the years. Um, I worked a lot with veterans who have, you know, military trauma, a lot of sexual trauma in prison. It's really sad for both men and women. So, um, so yes, they do have access to the media. They do not have access to internet. So this is both federal and actually nobody has access to the internet. I'll just put that out there. No, um, but other states besides Texas do have some access to computers. So they may have um, tablets that have like access to the VA or access to um, some reentry programs that they're gonna use when they get out, those kinds of things. Maybe, maybe school, like some of them will be able to take school online mm -hmm. um, through those computers. Um, and then those computer, like Illinois um, has um, uh, issues every inmate um, a um, tablet and it costs money to use like games or movies or books like all that stuff costs money and then there's a free side which is education and services and things like that so um and they cost a lot of money like it's it's probably 30 bucks for an hour of use on the pay side so they make a lot of money on those um texas does not have those yet they're working on it and it's going to be another it's going to be really expensive on the pay side which is how there's a number of companies out there that make money doing that so you talked about like a lot of inmates having trauma do you have a lot of resources to help them with that yes so when i was at the um, Texas Veterans Commission, I actually worked specifically with veterans um, and with their trauma. And, and so we had um, a group of people in the community that could, could link right up with them when they got out and get them into mental health services if they need them, substance abuse services if they need them. And then the military, um, so when you're in the military, when you leave the military, you fall into two categories. One is you can use VA services, so the Veterans Administration, and get help there. And the other category is you can't. And there's a variety of reasons for both that I won't go into because it's really convoluted and crazy. Um, so people who can't, we had a whole list of therapists that would work with them on sliding scales, um, people who would help them with housing, people who would help them with education. Like literally, if you wanted any help at all, we had it for you. And if you failed, I mean, there's, you know, there's other reasons that people fail, but if you never responded to our help, that was all on you, you know, cause we would do the reaching out. We would try to take away that first scary. Like when you guys reached out to me, that was scary, right? Even though you yeah. knew that Hershey had already called me, like you sent me this email, you're like, oh, this is scary. It's a cold call, you know, that's really scary for these guys too. And most of them will just blow it off. And and then they'll just go back to prison. So we would do the same thing. Um, we would either do a warm ha handoff like Hershey did with you guys, like, hey, Aaron, these these um, women are going to call you. They're going to you, you know they're going to ask you questions. And I was great. That's fantastic. Um, or we would like do the other way. We would just reach right out to them. Hey, Joe, how you doing? I know you just got out of prison. You know, come to my office. Yeah. They love it when I do that. <laughs> actually freaks them out quite a bit. <laughs> um, so I just have like two brief like context questions. Um, I'm just wondering like what kinds of facilities you've worked in or currently work in and like what level of security I guess they were. Yeah, so um, I there was two different kinds that I well, 
there was three different kinds. So I went to county jails. So a county jail is where um, like you've gotten arrested and you either haven't been tried yet and you haven't been let out on bail or you're serving a short time, less than a year generally. So maybe you've gotten your second DWI and you've got six months jail time, like you'd be in a county jail. Um, and then there's state prisons and state prisons, they also have some, some variations in them, but in general, um, so I went to every kind, like every level of security prison. Um, and I talked to people who had every kind of crime except death row. They wouldn't let me on death row. Um, but, um, so, so the, my, I don't want to say access, but because I worked with veterans, it was like anybody who's a veteran I could talk to. And then there's federal prisons. There's two federal prisons in Texas. Maybe there's three. I think there's two. Uh, I think they closed one. Um, and those were, there's three. Uh, I went to one that was minimum security, like the guys walked around, like they worked on cars and stuff. Um, they just had to, you know, go back inside at night, basically. Um, and then there was one that was medium security. And I think the other one was maximum security. It was pretty tight. Um, that was down in El Paso. Um, I worked with people who had all different kinds of offenses, um, a lot of people who were sex offenders um, because people, who, and, and not because, but so the, a very little known um, fact is that, because nobody really wants to talk about it, is that there are more veterans who are in prison for sex offenses than civilians, like statistically. Um, and nobody knows why. Um, everybody knows it's a thing, but nobody really knows why. And so uh, since I organized veteran groups, um, I did end up working with a lot of folks who had sex offenses. Of course, sex offenses are disgusting and horrible. Um, and I'm not in any way, shape or form like advocating for them. But I didn't find out what people did is, is the way I dealt with my work in prison. Is in general, I didn't know what people did to get into prison it made it a lot easier to work with them as people, um, you know, because people do some really awful things. Now, interestingly, well, I think it's interesting. I worked with a women's group. Um, I had one women's group that I went to. So there's um, two, three women's prisons in Texas. Um, and I went to two of them for two different reasons, but I had a veterans group in one of them. And all seven of the women in there had murdered their husbands or boyfriends which I just thought was interesting because I could identify. No, I'm just kidding. Shh, get off the recording. <laughs> but I just thought it was interesting, you know, that they were all veterans, they were all in there and um, and they'd all murdered their, their partners. I just thought that was fascinating. Um, I am fascinated by weird things though. <laughs> so the, um, the different, the real difference for me going into each of the prisons and jails um, security wise was virtually no nothing like there was virtually no difference um so i always dressed basically the same i would wear flats pants um and a looser fitting shirt that had a collar that came up usually actually this is pretty conservative and i'll have it i would have one that came up to my collarbone um i would wear short sleeves in the summer because they're not air conditioned and long sleeves in the winter. Um, and my this was my uniform basically for going in there. Um, and the reason I very specifically wore pants was because I, my thought process, and I'm just gonna let y'all in on this, was that's just one more step they have to take to rape me is to get those off of me and I will fight to the death, you know? So it gave me more of a fighting chance. And then of course flats, because if I had needed to run, I was running, you know, there was no, no one was gonna stop me. 
there have not, there has been one person, one volunteer, which I was considered either a volunteer or a vendor, depending on where I was in like 40 years, who's been injured or killed by um, inmates in general, the inmates um, all like wanted to protect me. They'd be like, oh yeah, don't, you need to walk over on this side. You need to know that guy, do not talk to that guy. I mean, it was pretty funny how they wanted to protect me. I went to one unit, which was um, high security that had the death row on it. And this one man was sort of about four feet away from me for quite a while as I was talking to people. And I finally said, I'm sorry, I, did you have a question? Cause you're kind of hovering over here, you know, sort of in the periphery. He's, uh, no, I'm your security guard. I was like, okay. <laughs> so they're really concerned that because they know that it's um, special, that, that volunteers can come in, that people can come in and help them and see them. Um, they're very concerned with the safety of that person, um, the people that I was with. Now, clearly, you know, think bad things happen in prisons, right? Um, but but they made sure that um, that they didn't. Like one guy cat called me while I was in there, you know, whatever. And um, they all turned around and they were like, and I was like, okay, don't know, don't start a gang war because he kept, I'm like, bud, look, you and I can talk about how that's inappropriate. You, you just stand down like everybody this in the grand scheme of things, you know, but it really, um, it was very interesting to me how protective they felt of me. That's very cool, actually. <laughs> kind of interesting. I mean, um, it, it really did feel pretty cool and um, and also a little weird, like, because yeah. you know they've done some very bad things to be in there. So it was kind of a strange. Um, now, I, I have to tell you a story along with that. So a long time ago, um, like 20, 25 years ago, I taught GED classes in the Denver County Jail. And um, and I was in there one day and the, the guys were, you know, like bugging me about where I lived. And so I gave them a general area of where I lived and they were like, oh, well, we grew up and they would grown up like a few blocks from where I had bought this house. And I'd known there had been some gang warfare. That's why I could afford to buy the house, you know? <laughs> and, and, but, you know, I was a, a white woman. Nobody was going to bother me. You know, it was like no big deal. And they were like, don't you worry, you've got the protection of whatever their gang was. And I was just like, I don't know if I want this. <laughs> yeah, like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean the other guys are going to burn my house down, does it? <laughs> so, so this has been going along for me for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you describe what a typical work day looked like for you? Like, pre-pandemic and then over quarantine and now maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So um, pre-pandemic, um, I would be going somewhere. So I'd be going to a jail, a prison, whatever. Um, so if I was going to a jail or a prison, I would have to arrange that ahead of time. Um, again, I'd put, you know, I'd have my little uniform that I told you about on and I would have make sure the only thing I was carrying in with me was a notepad, a pen and my keys very important like you can't have cell phones you can't have like anything you couldn't if i had an apple watch i couldn't wear that in um and so like be patting myself down as i'm walking over to the gate at the gate depending on which facility i'm walking into they might search me and you do they have the, the option of strip searching you if they want so um i underwire bras 
are a no-go. Like I started wearing sports bras all the time when I would go on to, or, or bralettes, you know, when I went on to the units, um, because you, they don't want, you don't want anything that's going to buzz. That's going to make them tell you, you have to go take your clothes off basically. Um, I did have to get searched one time because I forgot the bra rule. And, um, I, I basically, you know, they take you into a bathroom with a, a female guard. And I said, it, it's my bra, isn't it? And she goes, most likely. And I said, can I just lift my shirt? And she said, yeah, sure. And so I just, you know, did that. And she's like, that's fine. Like she wasn't interested in this, you know, any more than I was interested in it. Um, so then I would go in and sometimes I would sit for an hour waiting to be escorted onto the unit. And sometimes I'd be escorted right away. And some of that had to do with staffing. So with staffing on prison units is um, everywhere in the country, they're really short um, uh, corrections officers. And so they can't do things like escort me over to, you know, G wing so that I can sit down and talk to people. I was the last thing that they wanted to deal with. Um, and part of that is because people get, you know, the folks on the units get a little riled up when there's somebody that they don't see there all the time. They're like, oh, who is she? What's she doing? Why is there here? Why can't she see me? You know, this, all this whole thing. And, um, and since I had only showed up, there's 104 prison units in Texas, and then 200 and 250, 200 and 143 county prisons, county jails, and then like I said, three federal prisons. So I don't show up that often, right? So having somebody new out there is, is a little stirring. Um, so I'd go out, I'd see my people for whatever I was going to see them for, and then I'd leave and I'd drive, I'd either drive back home or you know, if it was far away, I drive to a hotel. Um, I spent generally two or three nights in hotels a week. Um, and um, so that was if I was going to prisons. If I was going to go teach police officers, again, I'd drive somewhere. I, sometimes I would get to fly, but almost always it was driving because in Texas, everything's really far away and everything's really rural. So even if I could fly partway there, it still would be driving another three hours to get somewhere. Um, so I was teaching police officers, I would drive to where I was going, I'd set up the classroom, I'd make sure all of our AV equipment work, I'd get all the police officers in there and I'd start training them. And generally with my police officer classes is something really, I think is interesting is, um, so I was teaching, my class was called um, Veterans Trauma. And so I talk about trauma that justice involved veterans have gone through, but I would also talk about police trauma because it's very similar, you know, similar things happen to them, similar, um, similar reactions. Um, and, and then, and I would have at least one person in every single class come up to me and say something like, I think I have PTSD, or I think I have a um, traumatic brain injury, or, and then I'd have to help them find, you know, who they can go talk to and how they can get some treatment and that kind of thing. So that was, that was a three-day class. So I would usually be gone for four days um, for those classes. If I was going to a court, it was the same thing. I'd, you know, arrange it ahead of time. I'd show up at the court and I'd schmooze with people. I'd talk to the judge. I'd talk to the court coordinator. You know, if it was a small town, the mayor might be there. Because I worked for the state of Texas, people thought I wielded this incredible power. They had no idea. I had no power at all. <laughs> but everybody wanted, you know, to be a part of it and to know what I could do. And so my, I always, if somebody asked me a question, if I couldn't immediately answer, I always found out the answer. 
or found out the person that had the answer because you know now i've got another another tool in my tool belt that i can use in the future but also if they've made the effort to ask me a question i should make the effort to find out the answer so that was kind of how i went about my day and and i stepped on a lot of toes with that whole answer thing because i would go find out the answer and report it back and people would be like well why didn't they ask me and i'd be like i don't know i was there you know and um and so the I, I don't care about that though, <laughs> because they got their answer and that's what it's all about. Okay. Um, you've had such like, what seems like an intense and like very interesting career. Um, <laughs> but did you ever feel like a bit of relief when the pandemic hit? Just that maybe it was like a way for you to take a break or? A little bit, a little bit relief, but more fear of what was yeah. going to happen to my job. Um, um, my husband works construction. He installs, or it, when we lived in Austin, he installed rainwater collection systems and he was put on um, two weeks of furlough because they closed everything down. And we were just like, what's going to happen? You know, we've, we've got bills to pay and, you know, am I going to keep my job or am I going to be able to keep doing this? So I spent a lot of time worrying, um, cause I'm really good at worrying about, um, you know, how to prove my worth when I wasn't doing what I was hired to do. But as an aside, I also spent a lot of time training. So I ran four marathons in the last year and a number of half marathons and stuff because I had extra time because I wasn't driving all over the state. You know, I could get up in the morning and go for a run and come back and sit down at my computer and, you know, like no worries that, you know, I don't have to take a shower, although it's disgusting if I don't, but I don't have to do my hair. I don't have to do my makeup. I don't have to make sure that I brought underpants with me this time when I was traveling, which is something I often forgot and would end up at TJ max you know so um you know those little things that th those little things got put out of my mind which was really nice but i i um i wish in retrospect that i had taken some time off and just been like because i had plenty of vacation time you know it's not like i didn't have time i could have taken a couple weeks vacation and just done nothing you know but um, instead, I did a lot of worrying about, you know, what what we were going to look like through at the pandemic and then through the pandemic. During the pandemic, during the beginning of the pandemic, actually not the beginning, sort of the middle. So in January, the Texas Texas legislature went back into session, and they said um, every state agency has to reduce their spending by ten percent. And so we were all terrified because um we there's six of us in our department and all we could think was we were going to get the we're and we're mental health it was the mental health department that i work for that we were all going to get the axe because who cares that much about mental health nobody we're a five-year-old department and um if they cut us then they could save that money we were terrified i wish i'd gone your way of relaxing <laughs> yeah seems like it would have been nice um yeah. But I'm also interested in the um, suicide prevention like classes or workshops that you ran. Was that pre-pandemic um, or during the pandemic? Yeah, so I was trained in them um, before the pandemic, and I did a few during the before the pandemic in person. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, um, so I um, I am a, I attempted suicide when I was 16 and I clearly survived and got a lot of help and and was able, you know, now I have a good 
good ways of coping and those kinds of things um, and, and a good therapist. Um, and um, so it's really important to me that people know what, you know, what the signs are, what we can do, you know, all of that stuff. And I've never really done anything with that, like, except for feeling like this is important, you know? So I was given these two classes. I was giving training to be a train the trainer in two these two different classes, and both of them struck me because they were they are both um, classes that teach you what to look for and what you can do. And I'm like a doer. Like I gotta have something concrete, you know. Like okay, I see this. I can do this to fix it, right? Um, and and these classes gave me that. And so I went out and in um, 10 months, I trained 2000 um, people in Texas. And, um, and it was just, it was wonderful. I mean, I was doing one of these trainings a day for almost the entire pandemic. Um, and actually when I left the agency, I was given a big award and they've now got a scholarship fund um, in my name for training that many people. But I just feel like it's a really important topic. And um, and I felt, you know, it really hit home with me. And then all of a sudden these classes were available and I was like, everybody needs this. Like literally, I, I even trained, so in my work community, I trained 2000 people, but in my personal community, I trained um, some gun shops. Um, I trained the YMCA. I trained, did two trainings at our public library that were on Zoom. So I was just reaching out to anybody. I did um, moms, it's not moms against guns, but you know, the, the mothers, you know, the group I'm talking about, I did a training with them and just because everybody needs to know, um, you know, what the signs are and what you can do and how you can reach out. So, and I'm happy to teach your class that if you'd like me to. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. That is like so impactful. We're trying to get stuff like that just at our school at least, but I understand what you mean about the trying to like stress the importance of it. Um, yeah. And, and just having like knowing something because because, you know, the thing that everybody says is oh, I didn't know, you know, yeah. and and we don't know. And I mean, and even though I know all this stuff, I've still lost friends. You know, it's not like it's a magic bullet, but at least it gives us some stuff we can look for. So and and I then that offer is out there. If you guys want me to talk to one of your teachers about teaching and I'd be happy to do that. Absolutely. Um, but how did that sort of like running that program, like make you feel like, I, I guess in some way, if you're working with difficult people all day or dealing with things that can make you like emotionally distressed or upset, yeah. that must be. It's a lot. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. So teaching, I, there was a couple of times I had to cancel some suicide prevention classes because mm -hmm. you have to put on like a suit of armor to teach this kind of stuff, you know, cause you're talking about suicide and people dying and, and talking to difficult people, same thing. Like you have to put on a suit of armor when you know, you're going to be dealing with difficult people. My husband, uh, my husband has a friend whose girlfriend is in prison right now. And the friend had a lot of questions and my husband was just like, just talk to Erin. She'll tell you everything. And, um, and so I was talking to him and my husband was watching. He's like, you're so animated when you can talk to people and help them. He's like, you just, it like, that's, that's my thing, you know, is talking to people and helping them. And, you know, people often come, you know, sort of hat in hand, like, well, I was a drug addict and, you know, I, I did this terrible thing and I'm just like, okay, but what do you need? You know, <laughs> And, and to, to be able to give that to people. I mean, it definitely, don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I am not a saint by any means y'all. <laughs> Um, but being able to help people, um, really, it feeds me 
right? So just like talking to you guys, that gives me a lot of um, sort of good energy and, and self-esteem and all that stuff. So whenever I can reach out to people and do that, that is really, um, it, it's feeding me as well. And on the days when I can't do it, I've got running. Um, actually, I hurt my hip, so I don't have running right now. So I have four dogs instead. <laughs> Um, but you're right. You're right on with that. Like if you're going to be working with people all the time, you have to be able to balance it. And, and I'm not great at the balance part. Um, I still work on it, but you know, I've got time. I can still work on that till I die. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so you go running to um, sort of release yeah. anything that's going on. Um, how do you think that um, like inmates that have been cooped up in these facilities during COVID have been able to, have they been able to like get the same no. exercise they were before? Yeah, so it's been really bad for them. So because COVID, you know, passes through, you know, touching our mouths and touching things, all games, toys, like all the stuff that they would play with. So they play basketball, they would have access to, you know, checkers and chess and I don't know, Scrabble, whatever games that none of that, they haven't been allowed any of that stuff. Um, in Texas right now, well, it's supposed to be over hundred degrees. So if they, if they go outside, you know, they're not doing very much running there. Um, and they can't, they, no balls, nothing. So they have been, um, twiddling their thumbs and, and that, you know, having nothing to do because even the education classes were, were canceled for a while, like everything. And so, um, you know, church services or religious services were done on Zoom. These guys had really little. So we saw um, an increase in, um, I don't want to say riots, but in, in negative actions, I'll call them that way, because the, you know, riots, you know, it's, it's a thing. Um, the, over 400 people died in the Texas prison system um, that were inmates and another hundred staff died of COVID. Um, and then, you know, of course, on top of that, you've got you know, just regular disease going through that, that um, people die from. Um, in Texas, you know, of course, they had that incredible snowstorm this year. Um, and so staff couldn't make it. So, so these things are like trickle down, right? If the staff can't make it to the unit, then the inmates can't, then the old staff can't leave. And so now they're working, you know, 24 hours or whatever, and they don't, they can't let the inmates out because it's not safe for the staff or the inmates, really, they can't let them out of their room. So they feed them what's called a Johnny sack. And it's basically a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a bologna sandwich, some sort of fruit, usually not fresh and milk. Like that's what they exist on for days on end, which makes them really excuse me, hungry and angry, um, mostly angry um, because, you know, they have so little that when they have, when they can make it down to commissary and buy some hot Cheetos or anything, like just anything that breaks up their day is a huge luxury. So for much of the year, they've either been on lockdown, just stuck in their rooms, or um, they've been, you know, they could go to commissary, but um, so God, it's so there's like so many things. So with COVID, like trucks weren't delivering stuff, right? Because COVID. And so they couldn't get anything in commissary. So everything was out of the commissary. So they couldn't get their hot Cheetos. And so, you know, like those are all this like horrible things. The good part for inmates was they actually instituted, um, some, um, video calling. 
which was great. Um, and so some of the units, 40 of the 104 units have video calling now in Texas, and they're trying to get it in all the all of the units. But all these units were built in like 1970 and before, you know, the, from, to the 1800s. And so they don't have like the capacity for Wi-Fi. They've literally been trying to block Wi-Fi out for <laughs> the whole time. So it's this like big turnaround of, of mindset and trying to get this done. And, you know, so the there's there's some, you know, terrible things like they're just being allowed to go back and, and have visits behind glass, like in-person visits behind glass for one hour, one time a month. Um, that started in May um, so that you can at least see your person. In Texas, they've got a number of different kinds of visits. They, they do have visits where you can hug at the beginning and end, but they're not having those kinds yet. Um, so it's, you know, it's just behind glass, like you see in the movies, you know, with the phone and everything. Um, so it's, it's, it's been, I think it's been extra difficult on, on folks who are incarcerated. Um, the letters that I got where people were complaining about things, a lot of, you know, what I suggested is to, to sort of form a group, you know, form like an AA, go to AA, form an AA group. It doesn't, you don't have to be an alcoholic, just go and, you know, form a group of people that can be your support system while you're in there, not a gang. <laughs> But something that you have in common with people, whether you're a veteran or you were all in the Navy or you all are, are, are alcoholics or you all grew up in Houston, whatever it is, just something so that you've got, you know, a place to turn when you're when people are upset um, and they can talk to you about it. Um, what was I going to say? I don't even think they were allowed to do their crafts and stuff like they had a lot a really hard time um, and and in Texas and again around the country, but they still have an incredible shortage of corrections officers, because who wants to do that for a living, I mean honestly like it's got to be the most thankless job in the whole wide world and it doesn't pay anything so yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you think that staff members were able to like negate tensions within each unit or try and I don't know keep things like relatively yeah. so as with every job you've got good people and bad people right mm -hmm. so people are good at it and who are bad at it and so the ones who are good at it are the ones that went in with positive attitudes who listened to people's complaints who who acted on the things that they could act on and explained why they couldn't act on the things they couldn't you know the people who came in and treated the inmates like they're human beings mm -hmm. and then you know there's the bad ones of course and and there's a lot of those and they treat people like garbage and those are the folks that escalate it i it's my opinion that there are more good than bad co's i mean because you hear about the bad ones but in 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 all actuality, I mean, people don't stay if they're causing too many problems. I mean, because if if every time I go on a wing, you know, a fight breaks out, like clearly I'm the problem, you know, and and they don't want that on their units either. So um, they'd rather, in a lot of cases, rather be short staffed than um, than create more problems. So. But you know they lost a lot of COs too during the they lost them um, quitting because the they couldn't work the hours because in in Texas they've got mandatory overtime, um, and so you know they you can be forced to work eighty or hundred hours a week like there's no limit to it and these these folks would be just about dead at the end of the week and a lot of them. 
um, didn't work in their hometown. So they weren't going home at night. You know, they would travel, they'd live in, in quarters that were built for the officers, um, and, you know, which are like dorm rooms, only way worse, trust okay. me. Um, and, uh, and then they, then, you know, they couldn't go home for three weeks because they, well, we're short staffed and we need you, you can't go anywhere. You know, so sad, too bad. Yeah. How did like prisons navigate the staff loss in the beginning of the pandemic? They haven't. Yeah. They really haven't. Yeah, they're just running short. They're uh, the the. I think they're gonna. They're working on putting more people out on parole and closing more prisons, which which is a good thing, um, because people do better in the community. Um, sorry, one of my dogs is hungry. Um, and uh, but but they haven't and they haven't been able to navigate it at all. And it really comes down to I would say especially now um, with you everybody is hiring you know right now everybody's desperate like why would you go work in a prison if you could work anywhere else i saw an ad today for um um for some hotel chain that was like we will hire you to clean rooms for 20 dollars an hour in you know full benefits and we'll give you a 500 bonus i was like i mean i can do that <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I was like, if that's what your options are working for, you know, TDCJ for $15 an hour and having the potential of somebody throwing poop at you or going and working as a cleaning lady, I'd be cleaning lady all the way, you know, and I know I get to go home at night. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's going to be something that they're going to have to, they're going to have to raise, um, the wages and in Texas. <clears throat> it, so whenever anybody sees anything about a prison, they're always like, oh, they just get to sit around and watch HBO and, you know, do nothing all day and three hots in a cot. And I wish I had that. And I defy anybody to walk into a prison in Texas in the middle of August and say that they could stay there because they don't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is, it is warm. <laughs> and so um, they, they, people are, uh, people object to giving any money to prisons, even if it's for staff um, raises. And the cost of living, of course, has gone up in the past year. Um, and, you know, um, people aren't getting compensated more. And so it's just becoming a, a losing battle. So I don't know what the future is going to look like for that. Yeah, I think it's going to be more, you know, more closing of prisons, more community supervision. We'll go way over this way with all, everybody on community supervision and nobody in prison. And then everybody will be like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. We're having all this crime. And then we'll go all the way back. this way. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, from the community supervision has have inmates been able to find housing and like participate in reentry programs how easy has that or difficult has that been for housing is virtually is very difficult if you have a felony on your record it's very very difficult um people do background checks and that felony just knocks you right out now there are some acceptable felonies like dwis that people are like oh yeah i mean my my brother got one so i get that you know um but um people anything else people are like no we don't want you because you have a felony on your record so that makes it complicated you're not allowed to live in public housing if you have of felony and so that right there a lot of these folks have family members who live in public housing or like yeah you can come live with me well you can't because that person will get kicked out and never ever be allowed back into public housing 
again in their life. So it's a really we've got we've we're set up for a system for people to fail. Um, you know, now there's jobs available. So people are out there hustling and getting jobs. And because there are so many jobs available, your background isn't as um, as a big of a detriment right now, but the housing situation is still really bad. Um, there are, however, more reentry programs popping up. Um, so private nonprofits that are not related to the criminal justice system, except that they're a nonprofit, you know, that state funded or anything. And those are effective because they are doing um, person first work instead of like, you have to fit into this square, which is what the, the government um, entities do. So person first work looks at you and says, okay, you need a house, but you never got treatment for your substance use disorder and all your trauma. So you need mental health work. Um, you are, you know, $800 million behind in your child support. So we need to do something about that. So it does, you know, it looks at the whole person and, and tries to figure out like, really, what's the big, what's the biggest problem here, right? You need a place to sleep. Okay, we'll got you that and we'll get you a job. Those we're going to work on first, you know, and so prioritizing what's most important for that person. And that's what those, those um, private uh, nonprofits do, um, which is much better than what the government does. Mm -hmm. Has there been a rise in um, inmates that are like being turned out to the streets during the pandemic, um, just like homelessness, or is that something that people so that, prevent? That's, yeah, so interestingly, Texas, um, so we talk about Texas first and then the federal system. Texas um, has a law that says if you're on parole, you cannot be homeless. So your parole officer, if you're put out of prison, you're either housed in a TDCJ facility that is um, called a halfway house, which is basically a giant dorm um, and it's sort of semi-prison, um, or you go to live with your mom and your mom kicks you out, um, your parole officer is supposed to help you find another place to live. Um, so that's that, but that's only if you're coming out on parole. If you flat, so you serve all your time, those folks end up in the homeless shelter. Um, and there's a lot of them. the homeless um, population in Texas grew. I was just reading an article today, and I think it's at 18% in the last year. Um, and, and any of the big cities, Austin, Dallas, um, Houston, Fort Worth, um, El Paso, all have really tight housing markets right now. So there's a housing shortage for people without felonies. So you can just imagine those with felonies aren't doing so well. Now, the federal system is different, of course, um, because in the federal system, you are you serve your time like day for day or you serve your time and you have supervision afterwards. Um, and so the federal system um, threw a lot of people out and they definitely ended up um, with the, more of them ended up homeless. In the federal system though, we also see, uh, I don't wanna say a higher caliber of inmate, but they're more, more highly educated, more highly connected with the community. They've got more things going on because they're, a federal crime is, is generally, it's um, things like, um, you know, white collar crimes, or if it's, a, if it's you know, a, a sex crime, it's across county lines or state lines. So it's people who have a little bit more means and a little bit more um, savvy with the world. Um, well, thank you. I think we are just 
um, at about time, but thank you so much. If you guys, you are so welcome. I mean, if you guys, you, clearly I can talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Um, so if there's anything you want to follow up on, um, just shoot me an email and I'm happy to follow up with you anytime. Um, and if there's anything more you want to know, or you just want to hear more stories, I can share those too. <laughs> yes, thank you. You've had such an interesting life. Like I, Aww, thank your you. stories are amazing. You can do this. Just don't follow the path everybody else is on. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, thank you so much for your time. And please do call me anytime you want. Okay. Thank you so okay, much. Thank you so much. I Bye. appreciate it. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out our website for more episodes of Prison During the Pandemic.